Entrepreneurship has become a global phenomenon. Uncover the stories of entrepreneurs and investors worldwide. From Sub-Saharan Africa to Silicon Valley and beyond. Here on the Global Startup Movement. Now, here's your host, Andrew Berkowitz. All right, so I'm here with Andrew Rowan, who is an entrepreneur in residence with the Swiss Entrepreneurship Program, currently residing in Peru, uh, but his new book is Startup Vietnam and documents his experience in Vietnam, really helping the startup ecosystem grow. He was in Vietnam back in 2013 for the early days of the ecosystem. Uh, so Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Andrew. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Can you start us off really back in the early days when you first arrived in Vietnam and give us an idea of what that first or two years really looked like in the country? Yeah, so uh, how I ended up in Vietnam is, I, I think, somewhat organic and perhaps unusual in the sense that in 2011, I was working for a systems integrator and we had a, a project in Saigon, Vietnam. So I was part of a design team that did the system designs for audio, video, lighting, and shading systems in a single-family residence. And at the time, it was my first time in, in Asia. Of course, I, I was excited to, to check out a new region, and I remember being struck by the energy, the excitement, and the electricity in the streets of Saigon. As it was a, a short engagement on the way to the airport, I recall thinking that I had to move back one day, and so I did in 2013 as a consultant for that project. And that was a, a conscious decision the, sec the second time, but it was, again, only for three months instead of three weeks. Our local partners had missed five deadlines in those three months. Thus began my experience for doing things in, in a developing country. That first year that I spent in, in Saigon, I'd say it was a very steep learning curve, and it was, in some sense, it was good training for other developing markets, but I recall wanting to know more about the differences between the northern region and, and the south. I had spent my first Christmas of five in Hanoi, and uh, I found that I, I quite enjoyed it. So I moved to Hanoi to try and better understand the differences, and, and that's when I started working with uh, public sector programs up there on innovation and entrepreneurship using my experience, not just uh, with the tech background, but also I tried to do a startup in Saigon in 2013 as well. And uh, here we are some years later, and uh, I'm currently in Peru working with the Swiss Entrepreneurship Program as uh, an entrepreneur in residence. I just came back from Piura at the University of Piura where I was the first EIR helping them with community development also some programming elements with their women mentoring program and uh, sharing lessons learned and best practices from my experience in Vietnam's ecosystem. I do want to expand really quickly on that original project where they had missed five deadlines and learning as a Westerner how things operate in emerging and frontier markets. I think that over the, we'll say over the past maybe five decades of these countries really starting to develop, I think a lot of the West entering these markets, there's, there's there's been a lot of misaligned incentives. And I think one thing that stands out to me in, in your book is the story of the French. They had this problem of overpopulation of rats between the, uh, the passage between Vietnam and France. And the way they incentivize locals to get 
or help fix the problem is they would give a penny for each rat tail that the locals actually give them with the assumption that they would actually kill the rat and then give them the tail. But what was actually happening was they would cut off the tail, let the rat go, and then just give them the rat tail, which would probably make the problem worse because now you have rats that are bleeding and running around still. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that's, that's something that has also played out from, from what I've seen in the aid world and the NGO world and the nonprofit world operating in these markets because the incentives aren't correctly aligned. Because by definition, the money that goes into these projects, if it actually solves the problem, then there is no more need for them. And so they're disrupting themselves out of their own budgets. And so I think that that's something that I've seen the, the West really uh, struggle with operating in these markets, just mis- misaligning their incentives when they yeah, go Yeah, so in. the story you're referring to is about Vietnamese helping with the rat control during uh, the French colonization period in Hanoi specifically. And you're, you're absolutely right. The offer was to compensate Vietnamese for rat tails. And it's really a great example of the law of unintended consequences because the French authorities were presented exactly with rat tails. There were no rat corpses because there were a bunch of rats without tails running around Hanoi. And it incentivized rat farming. Uh, So people on the uh, outskirts of uh, Hanoi were growing rats, lopping the tails off and then bringing it to the uh, French authorities. For their reward. In the context of development aid from the West to other countries, it's not something that I can, I can really speak to uh, because I'm coming from the private sector, although I do work closely with the public sector. And the only thing I would say is that we have sometimes different approaches and sometimes overlapping approaches, especially in the context of, of Vietnam. Of course, uh, Hanoi has their own worldview and their ideology and the way that they believe the future should be realized. In the area of focusing on entrepreneurs and benefits for entrepreneurs, I think there's uh, general agreement. But what I would say is um, it's, it, our different approaches contribute to progress overall. And it's better than if neither side or, or neither actor had done anything at all in those efforts. Yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> the, the, the problem with the aid world and the NGO world, that's a whole separate issue that we can do an hour-long podcast episode on. <laughs> so we won't, we won't dive into it here, but may, I, maybe I should do it another time. But I do want to spend some time really comparing and contrasting kind of the, the three big uh, startup pubs in Vietnam, which I guess the books mention uh, Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh City, uh, or, 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 which is uh, also known as Saigon, and then Da Nang. Um, me personally, from, from what I read, I think I would enjoy, uh, is it Da, da Nang or da, da Nang? Da Nang, yes. Okay, I, I think I would jo- enjoy Da Nang the most out of, out of the three of those, um, but can you kind of give us a, a high-level compare and contrast of those three different ecosystems? Yeah, sure. So I think when most folks think of Vietnam's startup ecosystem, they gravitate towards Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City. As you mentioned, the names are interchangeable today. And and which one do the locals use more? The locals in Saigon use Saigon. So if you're in Saigon, uh, you're going to call it Saigon. The official name is Ho Chi Minh City, which was changed in 1976. Uh, And so, uh, well... 
I, let's just say in, in Hanoi, I, I got into the habit of, of referring it to Ho Chi Minh City more than Saigon. Personally, I, I prefer the name Saigon. Uh, I think it has a, a nicer sounding tone. And if you if you go anywhere in Vietnam, people are going to know what you're talking about when you say Saigon or, or, or Ho Chi Minh City. When most folks think of the, the startup ecosystem in Vietnam, uh, I think they only think about uh, Saigon uh, and, and that's it. But really, as you mentioned, there, there are three distinct ecosystems, at, at least three. Uh, there's some there's some pockets uh, also developing um, pockets of potential in, in places like Kanta, which is in the Mekong Delta, or uh, Hue, which is the former imperial capital in, in central Vietnam. But in, in Saigon, of course, you have uh, what accounts for approximately 25% of official GDP of the country. So it is the economic center of Vietnam. Folks there are, um, I'd say, somewhat more entrepreneurial from a consumer and marketing orientation. They really know where is the intersection between value and price point, how to, how to, how to sniff that out. And the weather is, is also quite different. It's constant, maybe lowest being 23 Celsius or, or about 75 degrees at night during the daytime, anywhere from like 90 to 95, so like 30 to 33 Celsius. And in Saigon in particular, you have uh, this, this very much dynamic feeling. The spaces, the public spaces, um, everywhere, it just, it's, it's, it's a place where you'll, you'll see people, for example, on Winhui, Walking Street, they'll, they'll be congregating uh, and, and just you know, sharing music or milling about with family and friends. In Hanoi, which is, of course, the political capital, and um, in some cases, one of the cultural anchors of, of the country, very different style, right? You, you have a lot of experience, generational experience in, in managing diplomatic relations, of course, managing great powers against each other. And so they, they have this, this built-in institutional knowledge for that. There are, of course, uh, there's a lot of technical talent from the universities that's uh, being outputted into the communities up in Hanoi. And uh, really, the expats who, or, or immigrants who are attracted to each varies quite di differently in the sense that usually uh, if you've got to build up government relations or you need to um, be working closely with the government there, Hanoi is, is the place to be, especially at the national level. Whereas if you're focusing purely on, on the market, you're going to gravitate more towards uh, Saigon. And I should also note that the weather does change significantly in Hanoi. They do have somewhat proper winters, uh, no snow, but it does get cold and there's no heat in Hanoi. And the humidity, I think, is something that I've never seen before in terms of the walls. They're covered in condensation in March every year at certain points. And of course, uh, proximity to China, uh, so there's more, I think, direct awareness of managing that uh, relationship with the northern neighbor. Um, and then Da Nang, of course, is special because it has features that neither city has, uh, beach, river, mountains, all within 20 minutes of each other. Uh, it has less pollution and uh, less traffic than either of the two big cities. And it seems like an ideal destination currently for digital nomads. There's also some activity there. For example, the uh, Da Nang City Incubator, which is a public-private partnership, 
And then also there is a, what I would call a, a social enterprise incubator. Evergreen Labs is based there, working on community-based tourism and finding ways to upcycle. For example, they upcycled 22,000 uh, Tetra Pak containers and converted them into lockers, which they, they then deployed in, um, in Saigon recently. And can you expand on what you mean by upcycle? Yeah, so Tetra Pak containers, which uh, is an invention from Sweden, and it's used to hold any number of consumer liquids, uh, juices, and so on. They, they contribute to uh, landfill usage, of course, and so you, you have these containers in Vietnam, and so the question is, you know, what, what exactly to do with them? And so what uh, Evergreen Labs did in conjunction with uh, some of their partners is they took these Tetra Pak containers and they processed them into lockers. They found a way to repurpose these Tetra Pak containers. And this is actually something that I, I showed in photos here in Peru recently because this is a process that can not only be done in, in Vietnam, there are other ways that you can find repurposing uses for what we initially look at as garbage, right? Right, and so you mentioned that in um, Hanoi is where you're going to find the ability to network and, and, and get plugged into the, the government if you have any public-facing business ventures that you want to push forward. But you know, within the country, do you feel like a B2B or a B2C startup, once it starts to get some, some traction and some capital, I mean, do you think that, like, do you, do you have to have some of those old money or government relationships to get things done past a certain point? I think it, it really depends on what your orientation is in the country. And what I mean by that is, you know, if, if you're a Hanoian versus if you're a foreigner and what is your uh, vision for, for scaling your startup or company, uh, if you have a vision of going regional or going global, then of course you're going to focus more efforts and resources on that and not so much on, on the domestic market. At the same time, I think that there's, there's a real um, challenge with a lack of transparency at times in Vietnam. And uh, of, of course, uh, sometimes there are just different styles of, of doing things, I would say, is, is probably the best way to put it. And so what we would consider as, as inappropriate coming from the outside uh, is perfectly acceptable in the business environment there. And it's, it's just one of many risks to manage in the Vietnam context. Hmm. And I thought it was interesting that you used, <laughs> that you, in the book you used coffee money as synonymous with like old money or like oil money. Yeah, go ahead. No, I, I was just gonna. I was just gonna ask probably what you were about to answer, which is like you know, because most of the wealth being created in Vietnam now, you know, you refer to as new money, but like the the old the old money and the, the traditional wealthy families. I mean, was that wealth built on coffee? No. So uh, in the book, the term coffee money means bribing, uh, mm. for, for lack of lack of a better term, um, and this of course is a. But, you know, it's it's a facet of of doing business in some places, uh, and then also in in the book, I, I do note that uh, if you're coming in as an American or as a Brit, you know, we just don't have the same tools in our toolbox as uh, let's say a Japanese coming in or or Koreans coming in, and and their their styles of approaching business are 
are also different as well in terms of taking folks out to dinner and building up that relationship. I'd say the, the wealth that has been generated in recent years uh, in, in various waves, uh, real estate, uh, and then making making money on the outside of Vietnam to bring back in to invest in new business lines and industries. That has, I think, shifted somewhat uh, to folks now trying to make money based on, on portions of the, of the new economy in, in Vietnam. So if you look at, at wealth in Vietnam, I think most of it is very closely tied to status in the sense that a war hero family or a political dynasty family in and you know dynasty not in in centuries but um, in key moments in in Vietnam's history that's quite different i think from how we look at wealth especially you know in the US context east coast west coast right when you talk about new money and old money right and so one thing you, you also talk about in the book is basically the, the need for more entrepreneurs in Vietnam to kind of be creative and try new business models as opposed to replicating things that maybe work in Silicon Valley or, or the West and, and trying them in Vietnam. But are there, are there examples of successful clones of businesses in Vietnam that, that have done well? Yeah, so um, what I would say about that first part is... Uh, not so much replicating Silicon Valley, but taking pieces or elements of the Silicon Valley model from, for example, Israel, from Singapore, and modifying it and, and localizing it and adapting it to Vietnam's needs currently. That's certainly, I believe, more realistic than trying to recreate a Silicon Valley, quote unquote, in Vietnam. And uh, to answer the second part, I should also say that I'm, I'm not necessarily against copying. Of course, that caveat being that um, as long as you're respectful of intellectual property, but in order to master something, I, I do think that you need to copy and practice at it and then eventually put your own flair on it. But um, to answer your question specifically, Vietnam's uh, only unicorn today, uh, VNG, they started off copying games or rather... They were importing games from China and deploying them in Vietnam. And for a large time, their model was just to copy Chinese business models. But they, they were founded in 2004, right? And um, in, what was it, two years ago, they declared their intention to IPO in the U.S.? Interesting. And so, so China was copying us, and then they were copying China. Well, I'm not sure... It's not uh, a one-to-one -one copy, right? right. Uh, I, I think if you if you look at China, what what they have copied is is um, and elements of of U.S. tech, right? That that has fast tracked their their quote unquote development of their technology, right? Because a, a large portion of those costs is is be, is borne by uh, U.S. companies in their research and development. Uh, the and and by the way, I, I I'd also say that. Uh, I'm not sure that today the mix is more copying than innovating in places like Beijing, especially if you look at the kind of technology uh, or, or the applications of technology that are coming out like WeChat, 
um, having that whole one ecosystem where you can do everything. Also with uh, having stores where you don't need to physically purchase anything. You can just walk in and walk out. And then some of the initiatives that they have around autonomous vehicles. And of course, the big advantage that China has when it comes to data and machine learning. You know, that, that, that's, uh, that'll be interesting to see in the future. In the Vietnam context, of course, because China's next door, if you're coming from China into Vietnam, especially as a foreigner, I think there's huge advantage. Uh, there's a huge value in having witnessed what has happened in China um, four to seven years ahead of Vietnam and then applying that into certain industries like food and beverage, uh, for example. And I know folks who've spent time in Shanghai and they've come back to, or they've come to Vietnam after and everything just like clicks. You know, once you see how the middle class has grown in China, what they spend it on as a result, their disposable income, and then coming to Vietnam and also seeing parts of that rise, it's almost like having seen one vision of the future in that sense. Right. And it's kind of like a crystal ball. Like you can go to China or Silicon Valley and, and, and see what market trends are taken off there and then come back and project that out and be early in taking advantage of it in Vietnam. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I, I, w- I would also say that no one wants to be first or last. Uh, and it's quite difficult to convince people of the potential of, of any new business model, especially if they haven't seen it worked. Uh, they haven't seen it work before for the, in their own eyes. Because they, they naturally tend to say, like, well, if, it, if, if this model would work, somebody would already be doing it. Well, you, you mentioned that, so when it comes to the legal and regulatory framework, I mean, is that becoming more mature and robust? Because you mentioned in the book that most startups will register themselves in, in somewhere like Singapore to make sure that their IP is protected by a more mature Yeah, so there are definitely advantages to uh, incorporating a place like Singapore that has a stronger legal environment and enables you to keep your IP there, whereas you have your development team in Vietnam taking advantage of the low cost of of living. Um, What I would say in the the context of Vietnam's uh, regulatory environment is that uh, there, there have been some good efforts to to try and create incentives for, for entrepreneurs and to try and get, I'd say, the whole policymaking body of the government on the same page. I think there, there are a few um, uh, ideological clashes in the sense that balancing what they perceive to be the state's uh, security needs with uh, an open and free market to enable uh, businesses to, to flourish, especially businesses that rely on digital technologies to flourish. And I, I, don't, see, I, I don't see that unison yet coming from all corners of, of the Vietnamese government. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that makes sense because things are, this is the case in Africa, things are just very much siloed across, across the government. Like everyone holds on to their own what would you call it, their own power structure? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's absolutely the, the right way to frame it. You have across the various ministries SME programs in several of them, but they're either not well publicized or there's some gatekeeping measures, so the access is, is quite limited. At the same time, you're absolutely right. Is You know, you have different, different factions that have their own private sector allies, 
and they have their own ways of doing things. So that is always a consideration when you try to figure out what's really going on behind the scenes. So Andrew, we're going to finish this off with a quick fire round, four questions, up to 60 seconds per answer. Does that sound good? Sure, let's do it. All right, so let's say it is my last night in Vietnam. I need to fly out in the morning, but I want to do maybe you know one, one touristy thing. Uh, or what would you recommend to me as, as the one thing that I need to do before I leave? Uh, depends what city you're in. <laughs> All right. Well, let's say. Uh, well, I told you, uh, da- da Nang. Oh, is, Da Nang's your is spot. My, is my huh? spot. Yes, that's my spot. Oh, uh, one touristy thing. If it's a Sunday evening and you haven't yet checked it out, I would check out the Dragon Bridge. I believe every Sunday at 9 p.m. there is a fire and water show. So the Dragon Bridge. Uh, looks like the name implies and it breathes fire and shoots out water that's awesome <laughs> yeah i definitely need to check that out <laughs> yeah so give me an idea of your, your your favorite local dish like you know if you were at a restaurant and, and and you wanted to order like what what would be the number one local cuisine that, that you would choose oh that's easy it's buncha and uh i'm i'm 100 percent in that camp and and what is what is it yeah, so it's uh, noodles with pork, like charred uh, slices in, in a soup, and the noodles are served separately. You, you take the noodles, you, you can either plop them in the soup or eat them separately. Uh, most people just dunk it in. And then, of course, you have some, um, some herbs that you can season that lovely dish with. It goes great with a beer. <laughs> What is your favorite business book and why? Favorite business book? Hmm. That's a good question. You know, and you can't say your book. Yeah, no, I, I'm, <laughs> I wasn't going to go there. Um, my favorite business book? I, I, I'll, I'll tell you the last few books I read. Um, I read the book by Andy Grove from Intel. I found that to be quite, quite actionable. In high output management. Yes. Yeah. High output uh, management. Yeah. I love that one. Um, also, oh, zero to one by Peter Thiel. And yeah, I, I'd say those were like the last two big business books that I that I read. I, I consume a lot of nonfiction, and I still have a backlog of Vietnam um, and Vietnamese history, modern Vietnamese history books that I have to get through. You know, I try not to stock up on on uh, new books before getting through some of the the backlog. But yeah, high, high input management I think is, is good, uh, very actionable to go back and to refer to uh, time and time again. And final question: What has been your favorite thing about the time that you've uh, you spent living in Vietnam? I'm super grateful for having had the experience of, uh, one, living outside the U.S., and uh, two, being able to see uh, what another society encourages rewards from its, its members, like in Vietnam, and, uh, of course, uh, learning about a, a different style and uh, a different, different way of doing things. Not better, not worse, but just different and also being able to uh, connect the dots. In the last year, I've been traveling more. So uh, Egypt, Mexico, Indonesia, of course now Peru, 
And I, I can definitely see a, a lot more similarities uh, than differences in, in different parts of emerging markets. Awesome. Well, Andrew Rowan, author of Startup Vietnam. And by the way, where, where, where can we find the book? Yeah, great question. Uh, book is on Amazon. And uh, if uh, listeners are interested in personalized copies, check out my website, andrewprowan.com. Also, that's the place to check out all my social media contact. Happy to always connect with folks who are interested in Vietnam or um, any of the countries I mentioned. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to you, Andrew, and uh, have a great one. Thanks for listening. Be sure to add Andrew on Snapchat at andberk, that's A-N-D-B-E-R-K, to see firsthand a day in the life of an entrepreneur in cities all around the world. 